right. Uh, this is a one-hour meeting. Today, Sarah has agreed to share her experience, strength, and hope with us until approximately 9.35. So, please welcome Sarah. Hey! Woohoo! Woohoo! Oh, thank you. That was nice, Chris. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for reading. Thank you, Ben, for organizing this meeting. And thank you, thank you um, everyone, for gathering here today. Um, before I found ACA, I spent my life asking the question, when am I going to find that group of people, the society of people who knows me and can see me and can understand me and speaks the language that I speak? When am I going to feel like I found a place that I belong? And um, coming to ACA has really given me that gift. And the love and security um, that this fellowship has provided has given me a foundation um, that I've been able to, um, I've been able to make meaningful changes to my life on that foundation. Um, so when, uh, when I was talking to Ben about possibly speaking here today, I shared with Ben, I said, I'm not really sure that I qualify because um, I'm not an AA. I am an ACA, um, but I've never been an alcoholic. Um, and I shared that uh, my major addiction for a long time is actually addicts, alcoholics and addicts. Um, this is the primary method through which I, I tried to find my redemption and salvation helping um, addicts in my life. So I, I wanted to start there today. Um, I, I was 18 years old and homeless when I met, um, when I met Charlie, the addict that I would spend the next nine years with. Um, we kind of romanticized our relationship. Um, we said that we, we saved one another. Um, and, and that was kind of true. I mean, I, I, uh, I definitely found a, a kinship with him that I, I had never felt with another person. There was so much about me that he could understand. And there was so much about him that I really understood um, it was easy to be honest with him, and uh, we had fun together. We really did. Um, I eventually got my own place, and he moved in with me, and um, it was really, really great. It was really fun for a while. Um, I was 18, and my boyfriend was 21, and he was living with me, and he was bringing home alcohol all the time, and we were smoking weed all the time, and it was just, and, and my best friend lived downstairs, and he was coming up all the time to hang out with us and drink with us and smoke with us and watch movies. Um, it was great. It was fun. And it felt like freedom. Um, 
And uh, and then one morning, I I woke up, and uh, he was barely breathing. I thought that he was dead. He wasn't, he was fine. Um, we made it through that difficult morning. Um, and then I, I, I watched him get drunk that night and I got really, really angry. And after he passed out, I dumped all of the alcohol down the kitchen sink. And when he woke up, he was so angry with me. Um, but I had just realized that, oh my God, I think I think the, the man that I love is an alcoholic. And I felt so much responsibility for him. I felt like I needed to fix it. I needed to save him. Um, and so that's, that's what I tried to do. I was 18 and I decided to be sober. Uh, and I, I stopped drinking because I thought if I keep drinking, he's never, he's never going to stop drinking. And I would really like to see this man stop drinking. Um, and of course that didn't work. I mean, I spent the next eight years of my life, um, mostly sober and, um, that never really helped. Um, I, uh, I blamed myself, actually. Um, as things continued to get worse, um, I blamed myself because it wasn't, it, I wasn't trying hard enough, I thought. Um, I wasn't supporting him well enough. <sighs> it was extremely codependent. Uh, I didn't know that word at the time, and I didn't know what it meant. Um, but I, I just really needed him to be better. Um, I was convinced that if he stopped drinking, that um, everything would fall into place and everything would magically just get better. Um, over the years, I realized like alcohol isn't even this man's only addiction. He was extremely addicted to video games. Um, and. Um, it was, um, gosh, I don't know, I guess like 2008, 2009, when, when you know, we had a, a serious recession in this country, and there were no jobs. Uh, and uh, my best friend who lived downstairs, and um, my boyfriend and I all moved in together into one apartment. And then I was taking care of two addicts. <clears throat> I had a uh, a Vicodin and heroin addict in one room, and a video game and alcoholic, uh, alcohol addict in another room, and I, I was just, uh, I was trying to control everything. I was trying to take care of them. I was trying to take care of the house. I was totally neglecting myself. Um, eventually, an, another friend of ours moved in. Another alcoholic moved in, and. And I was taking care of, of that man too. I had three uh, three addicts living with me, three grown men who uh, were completely capable of taking care of themselves, and I just I I I did everything for them. I cooked their meals, and I cleaned up after them, and I cleaned.
cleaned up after them and they made messes being drunk. Um, I mean, they stole from me. They used me. Um, I, I let them because it felt, I don't, it felt right. It felt like that was my job to take care of them. When I, as I thought about that over the last year in this program, I realized that um, there are a couple of things at the bottom of that. One, um, I, I always act out of fear and I, I also seek security uh, from others and I seek approval from others. And, um, and also, I was repeating patterns that I had learned when I was a child. Um, so I had uh, <clears throat> an abusive father who um, I, I didn't know before the age of five. He just kind of showed up one day. Um, I was born into my grandparents' home, and that's where I lived until I was about five. And then, um, and then we moved, and my father joined us shortly after. And he brought parties and people and alcohol and uh, all kinds of things with him. Um, but he, he started to realize after a few years that this was really not sustainable. And uh, he became very pious. Um, then he got addicted to religion. Uh, our family joined a cult. And um, he injured his back at the same time. And he started taking uh, opiates. Uh, and I think today, he's, I mean, the last time I spoke to him about this, which was years ago, he reported that he takes something like 50 pills a day, which I just don't even, um, I don't know how he's surviving that, but um, that's, that's, that's what I grew up with, this, this uh, very dysfunctional, reactive, uh, addicted man who really expected me to take care of him. Um, my father was very confused about who I was in his life. Um, he saw a lot of himself in me, um, and I think he saw he saw he saw parts of himself in me that um, were scary to him. Uh, he saw his own shame in me. And he acted that out through various forms of abuse. And the message that I was being sent growing up was, um, you know, that I was just a bad person and that my father was severely struggling spiritually um, because of me, because of my wickedness. <laughs> I was a very small child, probably not even 10 years old, and I had my father screaming at me in a rage, telling me about how I was going to grow up to be a strung-out prostitute pregnant and in prison. I mean, when I think about that, like, who says that to a child? But 
it, it wasn't just once, it was, it was a pattern, you know, consistent over my life. Um, I was wicked, and uh, my family was in trouble, and my father was in trouble, and it was my fault. And I needed to be better, and to serve everyone better, um, to save us all. Um, wow. There's so many things that I can talk about. It's hard to, it's hard to really know where to go. I, I was led to believe um, that I was very responsible for other people. My father, my mother, um, and my siblings. I was a very young mother. I was five when I learned to cook. Um, I was always cleaning, scrubbing, helping children, raising children. Um, I was uh, extremely responsible for both of my parents. Um, I mean, my, my father had his own issues with me. Um, my mother certainly had um, some moral confusion with me also. Um, I was either her friend or her therapist. I just received so many messages um, about my own worth and my own responsibility and, um, and what my, my life was supposed to be about and what my life was supposed to be um, about avoiding. Right? So like, it was my job to take care of everyone, and it was my job to, to help others out of their problems um, because I was a bad person. <laughs> it was the source of those problems. It was very natural for me to, um, to take the responsibility for all of these addicts. And when I came into this program and I looked at the pattern of my life, I was completely stunned. Like, wow, I've just really repeated the same dysfunctional patterns over and over again, expecting, expecting things to change and expecting things to improve. And, and they never did. Things just got worse. Um, I could look around my life and see that everything was unmanageable and dysfunctional. I knew that there was a problem, but I couldn't see it clearly. And I was so dissociated from myself, so filled with self-shame and hatred, that it was imperative for me to disconnect from myself and imperative for me to disconnect from this experience. It was too painful. Um, It became clear to me It became clear to me when my best friend died from an overdose that um, 
I wasn't helping anyone. I wasn't helping me. I wasn't helping them. And by that time, I had reached a point where I, I really thought that um, I figured some things out. Where I left things with him um, was that he, he was at my, my house one day and he was so high that he couldn't even keep his head up and he was just laughing at nothing. And it was really painful to see. And I had just gotten him out of jail a few weeks before because he had nodded out while he was driving. And that day, I set the very first boundary that I ever set in my life. Um, I decided that I was going to stop watching my best friend kill himself. And I gave it a couple of days. I thought about it. And um, I invited him over uh, to talk. Um, and when I could see that he was sober, I told him, um, I don't want to see you anymore. I feel like um, I'm just watching you die. And I feel like I continue to support you in that cause, and I don't want to do that anymore. I told him that I loved him. And that I really wanted to spend the rest of my life in fellowship with him. So it was worth it to stay away from him until um, until he figured some things out. Um, he did try to get sober when he was pretty confident that he had established some sobriety, he reached out to me. And um, after he attempted various times, many times, I, I finally reached back out to him. And um, he was full of hope and optimism. And uh, he was very proud of himself, and he was sharing that with me. And then, um, Two weeks later, he was just gone. He was on methadone. He was trying to get off heroin. And um, I don't know. Some, uh, I don't know. I guess that inner critic just got him that day. And he decided that taking a few like it in wouldn't kill him. And it did. It took me a year to finally leave um, my uh, my alcoholic partner, and um, when I did, it was it wasn't out of anger. It was just I just knew that um, I couldn't continue to um, walk the path with him. He wasn't uh, ready to move on to anything different, and I was convinced that. Um, I had to find my way out um, because I was slowly dying. 
when I got out of that relationship, um, I worked really hard trying to find the solution again. Um, I threw myself into religion. I think I learned that from my father. I threw myself into religion all over the place. I went to um, Jewish temples and Sikh temples and mosques and Hare Krishna temples and Hindu temples and Buddhist temples. And I never revisited the Christian church again because it was too triggering. Um, I looked everywhere for God, trying to find God, trying to find a solution. In between, I I engaged in other dysfunctional patterns, just isolating myself, acting out sexually, workaholism, which is not something that I knew was a problem before I came to the ACA program. The ACA program, I hear the word alcoholism every or workaholism every single day. Before that, I thought it was noble to just work like 90 hours a week. Um, and now I'm just realizing that absolutely insane. Um, I wasn't serving myself and I wasn't serving anyone else. I, a year ago, I sent a, a text message to my parents and my siblings. Um, I included my siblings because I wanted witnesses. Um, and I think I also, I just wanted them to see that it was okay to be honest. My, my parents and I hadn't really been in contact for a few years. Thank you, Jenny. Um, well, my mother kind of acted out in a group text um, with our family. And um, I texted them all. And, and I, I just basically said, look, this is what it's been like. You've been abusive. You've been neglectful. I've been homeless. Um, you, you kicked me out of my family home when I was a child, when I was 17. I've had such a difficult time finding safety and love in this world. And you continue to make it difficult for me. Um, I have not been able to heal um, being close to you, and I, I need to be away from you um, to find who I am. I had never told them before that they were abusive. I had never confronted them about making me homeless. I had never confronted them about um, the neglect that they subjected me to. Um, that day, I finally decided to be honest with my parents and with my siblings. about what my experience is like. And since I have been honest with myself, and since I've also come to this program and I have been honest with all of you and this fellowship about what my experience has been like. And in doing so, I have revealed to myself my own dysfunctional patterns. I know that I act out of fear. I know that I seek security and safety in others. 
I know what the problem is, and I have a solution here. I have tools here to work on it. It wasn't until this program that I actually did find God. I chased God all over the place, and then when I finally just stood still here, in this fellowship, I felt the presence of God, and I received the message that through everything I've been through, God was always there with me, holding me, guiding me, protecting me, and carrying me through the most impossible and terrifying experiences. I'm still making sense out of a lot of that today, um, but I'm not reacting to any of that anymore today. I think about those things a lot, and I work on um, I work on these dysfunctional patterns. I'll never be done. Um, but I I know that I'll always have um, I'll always have guidance from God. I will always have guidance from this fellowship, and I will always have safety and love and support here. Uh, and that was a, a lot of talking. I, I've definitely gone a couple of minutes over. Um, thank you all for listening to me ramble around my uh, my life experience. All right, great. Thanks so much, Sarah.